particularly want to give you a warm welcome. Uh, Real Life Church is in its beginning kind of stages at the moment, which is sort of reflected in our size and what we're doing, but we feel um, that God has led us here to this place to build a large, influential, reproducing church um, in this town, something that gives honour and glory to Jesus, um, and that's what we want to do. Um, and uh, that's really what we're about. We're about Jesus and we want to make his name known, want to make his name glorious in this place and give as many uh, men and women the opportunity to respond to him. Just a little note, you may have noticed my wife, we haven't had a baby yet. Um, the due date is not for a week, but Mel announced to me yesterday that if Levi, our first child, is anything to go by, the child is due today because he was a week early. Um, and so if at some juncture during this meeting my wife comes in and waves frantic at, frantically at me, we might just leave, okay? <laughs> we might just leave and you'll cope and get on with it. But um, appreciate your prayers on that. So, you know, it's, it's coming sometime soon. Um, we don't know when, but it might happen today. All right, if you've got your Bibles, please could you turn to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians. Um, we have been going through this for a number of um, months now and we've got to the beginning of chapter 2 so we've nailed down chapter 1 we're moving on to chapter 2 um, we've looked at um, the first chapter is basically two sections, the first section um, after Paul's initial greetings, he's writing to a church in Ephesus he, his initial sort of um, section is one sentence, it was about 13 or 11 verses in your Bible, verses 3 to 14 um, and it's basically God, um, Paul's outpouring of praise to God about God's wonderful plan in salvation. It talks about our God as Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, each person fully God, um, but God in three persons as well as one God, which is, we've looked at as kind of a mind-numbing concept. It talks about election, our choosing in Christ. It talks about us being adopted into his family, God being Father. It talks about our redemption, our forgiveness and God's plan for Jews and Gentiles to be brought together into one under God, God's great mystery. The second section of chapter 1 was Paul's prayer by way of response. He's kind of outpoured his praise about God and then he prays to God um, out of a response and he talks about um, believers um, grasping what God has done. He talks about the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, which we looked at last time, that we would understand as um, Christians, what God has done for us. Looking back to the hope he's called us, looking forward to our inheritance that we can look forward to, but also thinking about the presence, that the power that we have available to us, the same power that rose Christ from the dead, is available to us as believers here now for everything we want to do. And kind of the homework I set you last week was to pray that prayer for yourself every day and then and see what happens. And I don't know what, you know, what the result of it is in your life, but... I kind of prayed that for myself and went into the week thinking, God, what are you going to use me for? I had a staggering conversation with a lady um, just that I kind of bumped into and we got chatting and she asked me about what, what we're doing here as a church and, and she knew all about the girls' school. She knew all about kind of the church in the area. She used to even use a t attend a church in a local area. And so I said, oh yeah, I know the girls' school. I know the church. I used to go to this church. And I'm like, oh wow. You know, she wasn't from, we weren't here. We were out somewhere else. Um, and so that's what I follow up on because I'm going to be seeing her again next week. Um, and so God is at work amongst us and I hope you guys have got stories um, like that yourself. Um, but we're moving on to chapter 2 now. And chapter, the beginning section of chapter 2, those first 10 verses, it can be broken down into sort of three bits and I want to go through each bit in turn over sort of three uh, subsequent weeks. 
And what it really is, the, the first sort of ten verses of chapter 2 can be broken down into bad news, good news, and kind of the results. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone came to you and said, do you want the bad news or the good news? How are you wired? For me, I'm always, give me the bad news first so I can get the good news afterwards, which leaves me on a high. Um, and uh, this is, Paul is obviously in the same frame of mind. He starts with the bad news. So we've got three verses of bad news today. I'm sorry to let you know that, but it's all going to be bad news. Okay, right at the end, I'll give you two words of good news. But before that, it's all bad news. And you might have been in a situation in your life where you've received bad news. You've had that conversation where you've kind of left feeling uh, devastated, feeling gutted, feeling kind of, you know, pain at what has just transpired. You may have had the conversation where it went, your services are no longer required. We are restructuring the organisation. You may have had the, um, the conversation uh, where they say um, the diagnosis is very bad. Um, what, you've, what you're facing is very, very serious. You may have had the conversation where someone says to you, this relationship is over, it's ended. And you leave with that kind of sense of pain and, and devastation at what's going on. And as, as bad as they can be, and we've all faced them in various times, the bad news I'm going to give you today is worse. Okay? It's worse. Okay? This is the worst news anyone could ever receive. Aren't you glad you came this morning? You know, seriously, this is, this is bad news. Um, and so, what we're going to be looking at, so, so just prepare yourself in your mind. And one of, the, one of the words I'm going to have to use a lot today is the word uh, sin, which is a Bible word. And basically, sin is any failure to conform to uh, God's moral law, whether it be in attitude or action or thought. Okay, it's that falling short of God's standards, and God's standards are perfect. And um, let's get into the passage and kind of you know, see what, see what um, Paul says to um, Ephesian believers. So I'm going to start at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just going to read all 10, and then we're going to focus on the first few. So it says, And you, that's the church he's talking to, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places uh, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Okay, the bad news there, hopefully you got that at the beginning. Paul has prayed um, about God's power being at work, and now he describes that power in this coming section. 
He says, I want you to understand it. I want you to see the power of God at work in Christ in your life, what's available to you. And as this section moves on, he describes how that has actually happened. He gives them the bad news of where they were, the good news of God saving them, and the results of that. He's talked about raising Christ from the dead in that prayer we looked at last week. And now he talks to the Ephesian believers about how you have been raised from the dead and are now seated uh, with Christ. Um, he's talked about the Christ who, who now is exalted and we are now exalted with him as believers because we've become connected uh, with him, which is wonderful stuff. But we need to, before you can pr- uh, truly appreciate the good news, we need to appreciate the bad because then we'll see how far we've come. So let's start. Um, first thing is, you were dead. Okay, that's the first piece of bad news. You were dead. Paul starts, and you. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the Gentile believers there in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, um, who he's been writing to, and he's saying, you were dead. You were dead. And just so you know, dead is a complete state. Fudging that, he means dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what he's making a statement about is the spiritual state of mankind. Our spiritual state. And he's not talking about a particularly poor area of society or a particularly bad group within society. He's not talking about that group over there. They're particularly dead. They're, they're depraved, that lot over there. He's actually, it's a general statement. It's all mankind. All of us. And you, all of us, were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's the biblical diagnosis of our condition. The biblical condition of mankind is dead. Spiritually dead before God. Um, and it's basically a spiritual alienation and separation from God. In Isaiah 59 verse 2, there's this bit where it talks about um, us being separate for God, that we can't hear God, we don't know him, we are completely separate, he is other from us, and we are dead spiritually towards him. And it's not a figurative statement, it's not like figurative, it's a factual statement of our condition, like the diagnosis of a doctor. I've looked at the patient, he's dead. You know, there's no kind of, well, when you mean dead, you mean, no, no, I mean, I mean dead. That's what, we'd, when they pronounce it, that's what they mean. It means we have no love for God, no awareness of God, desire to follow God, no sensitivity to his spirit, his leading, his calling. We are completely dead. And just like um, a human, when they are dead, they cannot respond to anything. I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of seeing a dead body. I have. And they are lifeless. They, they do not respond. They don't respond to the lights in the room, the noise, nothing. They cannot respond because they are dead. And we are like that spiritually before God. And it's a truth as believers we need to affirm and hold on to, especially in the light of the fact that you go out into the world and you see people who look very much alive. You know, you turn on the television and there's vibrancy and, and stories and pictures and music and you think, well actually they look very much alive. But God's kind of um, sort of judgment on us and his, his comment on us, his uh, sort of condition is, you know, you're dead, you're spiritually dead. There's nothing there. And that's where we stand as a, a race, mankind, before um, a holy God. We are um, dead. And this condition is caused by our sins. He uses two words there, trespasses and sin. Sin is a general term for human evil, the missing of the mark, the falling short of God's standard while trespasses is actually a, a specific term about our own personal, own personal acts. It like means a false step. You're crossing the line of a known boundary. You know, you can, you know this, is, this is the right side, that's the wrong side. You're deliberately stepping across it. You know when it says don't walk on the grass? What's the first thing that runs through our head? I want to go and walk on the grass and you kind of want to 
you know, put your foot out. And that's, that's trespasses. It's a specific act where you've crossed a known boundary and done something, while sin is kind of a general term for us falling short of God's standards. And basically, together, they, they cover kind of positive and uh, negative, active and passive parts of sin. They, they cover things like the, um, when I was in the Anglican church, they described it as the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Commission are things we've done deliberately, willfully. Omission is things that we should have done that we didn't do. So it's a kind of all-encompassing term. You can be kind of found guilty um, of sin because you've actually done something, but sometimes when we, we can say we did nothing, I didn't do anything, and actually that's the crime. Exactly, you didn't do anything. You should have done something. And it covers thought, word, and deed. Um, and we, um, by God's um, kind of reckoning we are both rebels and failures. We've rebelled against his rule and we've failed in his standards. And we, um, we cannot know God. Because we are dead, it is impossible for us to know God. We're Lazarus in the tomb. The story of Jesus when he rose Lazarus from the dead in John's Gospel, Lazarus was dead. He couldn't come out. The only way he could come out was when Jesus called him. When God called, then he rose. He couldn't respond. He couldn't yell out, raise me up. He was dead, and we're like that. And Paul actually prayed that in the prayer we looked at last time. You need God to know God. We looked at that. He said you need to pray to God that he would enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you would see. We need God to know him, and uh, that is our condition. And kind of for us, as we sort of look at this, we reflect on this, I think one of the things that we need to hit home is for those, of, those who don't know Jesus, those who don't profess um, a faith in Christ, those who choose not to follow him and honour him, this is their spiritual condition. They are dead. Okay? And if someone's dead, that's not good. Okay? That's not good. It's not means they're sort of unwell, they've got a bit of a cough, a gammy knee. No, they're dead. And actually, for friends and family members, I have many who don't know Jesus, don't want to know anything. Before God, their spiritual state is death. And that is not a good thing. That is a terrible thing. And that's not something we should just think, well, it's all right, that's their decision. Actually, no, they're dead before God. And it should stir us and motivate us in actually how do we respond to that. And it really shouldn't be with indifference. And actually, you know, that's fine. Actually, we we are responsible, those who've been given this kind of mystery, this truth, to actually react to that. So first thing, we were dead. Next thing, we were enslaved. If you read on the text, it says you were dead in trespass and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is um, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived um, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. Basically what it says is we were enslaved and it says we were deeply influenced and affected by evil in three ways. It talks about our environment that we live in, kind of the ways of this world. It talks about a supernatural opponent who stood before us, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is described as. And it talks about an inner, inner kind of inclination we have towards evil, the cravings of the sinful nature it describes in verse 3. And it, Paul is talking about, you once walked in these ways and it, it points to a continual bondage of slavery. A slave is a slave all the time, not just on the weekends, on the weekdays. It's a continual thing. You were enslaved continually um, to, to these three areas. And um, 
And the way we can sort of sum them up, and the way Paul talks about them in many of the letters, he talks about um, the world, the devil, and the flesh. They're the kind of the three things. And if you read Paul's letters, they, they come up time and time again. They're almost like we have uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is one God, three persons, each person fully God. Almost the anti-Trinity, <laughs> the thing that stand opposed, is the, uh, the world, the devil, and the flesh, which stand opposed to God. And uh, let's just go through them. The first one is the world. The world is uh, basically the, the environment we live in, the societies, attitudes, habits, I- I preferences. It's the air we breathe. You cannot get away from it. It's all around us, all the time, constantly, in how people speak and act, how we are uh, constantly bombarded by the media and information. And I guess in the last, what, 30 years, it has only multiplied because we have so much more access to it now with the internet and the television and smartphones, you are literally, it's at you constantly. And this is the environment that we live in. And we um, are products of Western, postmodern, relativistic, pluralistic thinking. Your own truth, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. There's no absolutes, which is always the funniest one, because if someone says there's no absolutes, you say, are you absolutely sure of that? You know. Yes, well, therefore, there's... A anyway, so it all kind of falls itself apart, but that is, that is what we live in, and that is whatever environment, in ever, uh, wherever you've lived, any time in history, there is just, they are, you are products of that particular culture that we live in. And most cultures, you know, are godless cultures. They, are, they, do not want, they don't want to seek to honour Jesus, they don't want to put his name up front, and we live in it in the Western world. Some people describe it as a post-Christian place. It used to be, you know, referred to as Christendom, you know, Christian, but it's not now. We're, it's way gone. There's kind of lip service paid. Even David Cameron, a couple of months back, you know, talked about himself being, I think he said vaguely Christian, which is like, what is that? Really, David? What is that? Are you or aren't you? You know, make a stand. Um, but this is kind of the world we live in, and there's so many other influences, and they all stand opposed to God in how we think, and almost you can believe anything as long as it's not about Jesus, really. Um, and that's the world we live in, and that influences us away from God. So it says we're enslaved. The second one is we're enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. This is the devil. Paul actually descri- names the devil in chapter, chapter 6 twice in this same letter. But here he's described as a prince of the power of the air. The devil is a personal, supernatural, evil created being um, that stands opposed to God. He leads an army of um, demons which are also set um, as enemies to God. They have been defeated at the cross but their defeat is not being made complete. It will be when Christ returns. So they are still active. And they live in this, uh, the kingdom of the power of the air. The power of the air is this kind of the realm in, in the thinking, which is um, a separate spiritual realm to what we see now in the physical realm, but they very much kind of connect and overlap. It's, you've got heaven, you've got this kind of power of the air where the devil kind of rules and runs, and then you've got us here on the earth. And the devil being um, a, a created being that works um, and it uh, works against God in it by influencing away from people away from God. And he works in the sons of disobedience, those who stand opposed to God, and he has um, power to influence men and women's lives. And uh, those, uh, we were once in that position. We were once in that position where we were influenced by uh, the devil and we would secretly, we would actively 
oppose God, his teachings, everything about him. We rejected the gospel. We didn't want anything to do with it. We rejected him, him as Lord, him as ruler. We didn't want to be on the, him to be on the throne. We want to be on the throne. It's all about us. And the devil is the one behind that, influencing that. And it doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean, just to clarify, it doesn't mean anyone was possessed like you see in The Exorcist. You know, it's not like that, ah, possession. It's actually, we're just under the influence. The devil is influencing, just like the world is influencing, our thoughts, patterns, and actions um, behind him. And even, Paul even says later, as believers, we're actually to resist that influence, resist ungodly thinking, resist ungodly actions um, as well. And even at that point, if you look, Paul actually says, we also, he actually brings in the Jews into that, Paul being a Jew. So it's actually it's that wider encompassing one. The Jews might have been in a position where they think, well, it's you Gentiles. You're the ones who have the problems. But Paul actually says, no, it's all of us. We all stand in this place where we are influenced by the environment we're in, the culture we're in, and behind that we have the, the devil working at anything that opposes God. Any kind of law, you know, um, thoughts, you know, stuff that comes out that will stand opposed uh, to God. And we are deeply influenced from the external by ungodly patterns, thoughts, powers. And so we are enslaved. And so, but it's not only outside, it's not only the world and the devil, which is coming at us from the outside. Paul said it's also internal, the flesh. He says we've had the world, the devil, the flesh is an internal thing. And that is basically our human, fallen, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-righteous nature. It's our rebellion against God that comes internally. The, the, the theological term would be total depravity. It talks about us being corrupted in every single facet of our character and being. Total depravity doesn't mean you can be as bad as you can possibly be. It just means you're corrupted totally. Every party, there's no part that has escaped. And that's why you can see people, you know, people do plenty of good selfless things. But behind that actually is a corrupted nature which is heart and its inclination by its character is against God, um, away from God. And um, it manifests itself in many ways, our fleshly desires. It manifests uh, itself in taking good things and making them God things. Things like food uh, and sex and work, they're all wonderful good things that God has given us. But our fleshly desires perverts them from good things to God things. We worship sex we worship work, um, we worship food, and they lead to devastating consequences. Whenever you remove God from his throne and put something else on it, the consequences of that are devastating and bad. So good things can become God things, good things can get perverted and lead to devastating consequences. Um, someone once wrote, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And we... we we just everything we, we touch is corrupted, um, and out of it comes um, anger, uh, envy, selfish ambition, you know, greed, all that violence, all those kind of things. Paul, um, Jesus even said that when he was teaching his his um, disciples and the Pharisees around, they're saying, "Well, you don't, you know, your your disciples don't do these outward, external acts of righteousness." And he said, "Well, it's not what, what's on the outside that kind of corrupts you; it's what's inside and what comes out." that is the corrupting influence. And he was just highlighting this point that actually we have a problem internally. Our very nature is corrupted. And because of all these three working together, it's not one you know, separate thing, it's the three working together um, and, and, and acting on our life. We are enslaved. We can't, you can't be neutral on this. 
You are either enslaved or you are free. And we are deeply affected. And the, the kind of the diagnosis is you're, you're enslaved. And the image um, that Paul's actually brought out in the first chapter was this image of the exodus and redemption bringing out of slavery. The famous story in the book of Exodus, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt film or the Ten Commandments film, you have Moses that God sends to his people who are in Egypt, the Israelites, they are under the, the boot of Tyrant, who is the kind of the slave master, and he's grinding them down and they have to work for him and they cannot get out. They are in bondage, in slavery. And that's the image for us. We were in bondage, in slavery to a tyrant and we couldn't get out. And we've got, we see that the world, the, the devil and the flesh are the kind of that master that is ruling us and we cannot get out of it. And what it, what it also leads to is a false thinking that you hear quite a lot of is that people are inherently good. You know, people are good people. The Bible says very clearly, no, they're not. No, they're not. No one is good. No one is righteous. Not one. Romans 1 to 3 makes this abundantly clear. There is no one good. There is no such thing as good people in their, in, in their intrinsic kind of in a sense, they're not good. They might do good acts, they might, make, you know, they might be good friends to you, but in their fundamental character and nature, nothing is good because we're enslaved and we are corrupted across the board. And what this points to is actually that it shows the futility of religion. It shows the futility of making rules that you try and keep to earn God's favour because you are corrupted in your fundamental being. You can't keep them. You cannot live up to a perfect God, a perfect standard. And let's be honest, you can't even live up to your own standards. Hands up who's kind of put standards in their life. I want to act like this, I want to be like this, I want to be a good friend and a good colleague and I might set some New Year's resolutions to improve myself and then have consistently failed at them. That is true for all of us. And it just shows how empty and evil religion is. We're trying to earn something from God. We're trying to make ourselves acceptable. We're trying to kind of clean up the outside when actually the problem is inside. It's internal, which you cannot clean no matter what kind of soap and detergent you use. It's something inside of you. We are corrupted internally completely and so what we need is a new nature, a new character. You cannot kind of jazz up the old and give it a kind of a makeover like they do in those housing programs. It needs to be completely... So we are enslaved. Number three. Told you it was bad news, didn't I? We are dead. We are enslaved. And the last one, the horror of it all, is we are condemned. It says we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. We are worthy of divine judgment. We stand under that judgment because of our, our sin, because of our trespasses, because of our failure. And the whole area of kind of divine judgment and divine wrath is not palatable. It's not a pleasant thing, it's not something we like to talk about and it's a lot, something that a lot of people get very angry at when you say God, God um, wants to punish sin and is angry at sin. Um, and it just, we just, just a little bit sort of unpack what it's like. First thing I want to point out is that God acts like this towards sin, but so do we. That's the one interesting thing to point out. When we see things, it's usually news articles will probably get it, or you hear stories about acts of evil, we react in a way that says something along the lines of 
that, that is wrong, that should be dealt with, the perpetrators of that should be punished. When you see acts of terrorism and violence and abuse, something in us says, that's not right, because we're built in the image of God. The guy, the girl, the people who did that need to be found and punished for their crimes. I remember it when all the images of um, 9-11 and, and that, the horror of that and you kind of started to take in the enormity and the death toll started rising. You start thinking, that was something bad happened there and people need to be punished. Even recently, I don't know, have you sort of seen about the, the ocean liner that kind of crashed and it capsized and the story's coming out of the kind of the negligence of the captain and the death toll is going up as they're finding more and more bodies and you think something needs to happen there. Um, someone needs to be punished for that crime, for the mistakes that were made. Um, and it's, this is kind of who we are. And so when we kind of think, well, God shouldn't punish anything, well, we think we should. <laughs> we're perfectly happy. If your car got stolen today in the car park and you came out and you were like, you know, you didn't react in a, who nicked my car? You know, it's probably, we would all think there's something wrong with you. But this is how God reacts when it comes to evil. He said, no, it's got to be punished. Another thing we need to address is that um, love and wrath, anger, are not mutually exclusive. Some people say things like, well, if God's a loving God, how can he be angry? How can he be cross? And the fundamental of that argument is just stupid. It is just stupid. Because if you take myself, for example, I have a wife, I have a child. If a predator came round, and I love my wife and my son, if a predator came round and tried to steal the heart of my wife, for instance, or try and steal my son, what dad and husband wouldn't be angry? What dad and husband wouldn't say, you will stop and I will do everything I can to stop you trying to prey on my wife and son? And the reason I would react like that was because of how much I love them. And I would react in wrath and anger and it wouldn't be pretty. But the point is, you can't have one without the other. You can't just say, oh yeah, God's loving, but actually he doesn't react to evil uh, and, and violence and sin. Just the same way we can't. If you love much, you'll be much more prone to wrath if the object of your love is, um, is attacked. And that's just the same with God. But there are some differences. God's wrath is not the same as it is hugely different. The wrath of God is a holy anger, holy meaning pure, set apart, separate, towards sin. It is not vindictive, which often ours can be. It is not um, impersonal, in just a kind of just a rage. It is a focused anger towards sin and sinful acts. It's actually, the wrath of God is a wonderfully constant thing because it, it never changes and you know exactly what it's focused at. So it doesn't fly off the handle, it doesn't act out of spite or malice, it's not on a whim, it's not one of those ones where you think, I'll tiptoe around this person because I don't know how it's just suddenly going to come out. We know up front what it's about. It's not based on a mood, God's in a mood this morning, and so, <laughs> one extra lightning bolt, you know be careful on your way to work kind of thing. It's entirely predictable. It's entirely focused on one thing, evil. And that's the wrath of God. And it is towards sin. And as we are by nature sinners, it was towards us. And that kind of feeling of 
being under the wrath and the condemnation of a holy, almighty, sovereign, powerful God is something that should fill us with dread. Because when you stand before a holy God, holy, pure, separate, above, perfect, and yes, loving and gracious and kind too, but his anger is towards sin, which we all know, we've looked, that we are all part of, and we all know we fail. We all know we've failed our own standards, let alone God's standards. And that sense of standing for a holy God without any kind of defence should fill us with dread. Because that's the way it is. And I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you've been found guilty of something and caught red-handed. I can still remember an incident when I was like, I don't know, six or seven, I was really quite young, where I was caught like that. And the dread that came on me when, I, when it, kind of my crime was exposed. I was round at a friend's house. We used to live in this little cul-de-sac. And I was at a friend's house that kind of lived sort of over the road. And we were in the back garden playing. And he had, we had another friend who lived next door to them. Um, and some of the toys they'd been playing with were in the other person's back garden. So we were in his back garden playing, but some of his toys were over the fence in the other back garden, and they were kind of out for the day. Um, and we said, well, he's, and the boy I was playing with said, well, we want, kind of, we, I want my toys back so we can put them in my garden because they're mine, but I just sort of left them around there. And they didn't have a fence between us. They had one of those kind of low fences with just two bars, so it's, you know, it's only about this high, and they've got bars to it. And so we hatched the plan, well, let's go and, you know, let's just go and take them back. They are yours, you know, we'll just go and get them back. And Muggins went in first, um, which with hindsight wasn't the best move. Um, and so I went in first just to go and get them. Okay, and then his mum arrived, and I'm standing in the next door neighbour's garden, while he's standing on the right side of the fence, looking all innocent. And she went berserk. She went really quiet, and she marched me round to the, the neighbour's kind of house to basically tell on my crime. And I was so scared, so kind of like, you know, so kind of, because uh, I knew that, you know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a defence. I got caught red-handed. I could, you know, I couldn't do anything about it. And I knew I was going to get nailed by the, um, the lady of the other house, thinking I'm going to get this twice now. And so I ran home. I ran home to my bedroom and I hid, I ran home, ran upstairs and hid in my bedroom thinking no one would find me. You're really dumb when you're that age, you know. But the, the point is what I don't, what I haven't forgotten is the feeling of dread knowing that was caught. And I could, I had no defence. I was completely kind of, you know, bang to rights, fair cop kind of thing. I was, I was caught and there was that feeling of dread. And we stand like that before a holy God. We stand like that before a holy God. Okay, so we are dead, we are enslaved, we are condemned. I'm going to give you a smidgen of good news and we'll look at the rest next week. And there's only two words. If you look at the beginning of verse 4, two words, but God. But God. The reality is all of mankind all of mankind stands under that kind of judgment of God. The dead, enslaved, condemned, but God. To be fair, I think there's a good argument for, for those being the two most important words in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly. This is how bad it is, but God. And if you kind of read on, you know where it's going. Um, and there's some good news and we'll look at that um, next week.
um, kind of the but God, what happens as he works out a little bit for us. First one is come next week. <laughs> Here's some good news. Don't just come this week and think, man, all I'm talk about a real life church is the bad news. The bad news is important because it makes the good news that much better. If I just tell you the good news, you think, eh, no, that's all right. But if you're aware of the bad news, then when you get here, the good news, you think, man, that's good. And that's so much more wonderful. So first thing, come back next week. Second thing, if you're a Christian here and you know the good news, you've heard the good news, you've responded to the good news, you live in the good news, the response for us on, on hearing that should propel us to worship. Because we know where the but God leads us. We know what comes next. We've, we've received that. We've enjoyed that. We live in the good of that. That despite death, enslavement and condemnation, we know there's a but God in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that should push us to the point of actually saying, God, you are wonderful. And when we're reminded of where we once were, we kind of enjoy even more where we stand now and the wonder and and the mercy and the grace of God on men and women like us. And it's a wonderful thing. Amen? Amen. Okay, um, we're going to hand over. You and you want to get ready? We're going to worship Jesus together. Do the kids know? Fantastic. Thanks, Pete. Um, Yeah, let's worship Jesus together.